If you take your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 21 through 38 is our scripture text for this morning. So I'd invite you to turn with me there as we continue looking at the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, beginning verse 21. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Then he, that is Jesus, said again to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. And I've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now, in these verses that we've just read, we find Jesus continuing to interact with the crowd in Jerusalem and the tensions that we have already observed here in the Gospel of John to this point and now in, in chapter 8. These this tension will only continue to build and to escalate, and Jesus' relationship with the crowd will continue to deteriorate until we get to the end of chapter 8 when they attempt to stone Jesus to death. The passage which we are considering this morning sets the stage for things to get ugly. Now these verses show us, show us the back and forth between Jesus and the crowd that is so characteristic of the Gospel of John. Jesus continues to tell these men about himself and about his mission, why he came. 
And he's met with a combination of misunderstanding, a little bit of pushback, and fickle faith. So as we consider these verses this morning, we'll consider them under, under three main headings. First, believe in Jesus or die in your sins. Secondly, continuing is critical. And third, Jesus brings freedom. So number one, you believe in Jesus or die in your sins. Continuing is critical. Jesus brings freedom. So first of all, believe in Jesus or die in your sins. The words that Jesus speaks here that we've just read follow right in line with the things that he has said leading up to this point. Earlier, uh, back up in chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, he had said, For a little while I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And here in verse 21, he says, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, by speaking this way, Jesus is obviously referring to his death. When Jesus speaks in this way of, of going away, he's talking about his, his death. He's talking about ultimately what would happen after his death. He would be raised from the dead and he would ascend to the right hand of God the Father. Now those who were who had been listening to him were trying to get a handle on what he was saying. They were wondering first back in chapter set, uh, back in chapter seven if he was going away to, to speak to the uh, the folks in the diaspora to teach the the Greeks or the Jewish people living among the Greeks. And now when Jesus is talking about going away, they wondering we're wondering if he might be speaking of his death and indeed he was speaking of his death but not in the way that they thought they were thinking that jesus was planning to take his own life of course he was not going to do that he was rather going to lay down his life of his own accord jesus continues speaking to them and he's contrasting the fact of their differing origins they were from below they were from this world jesus is from above jesus is not of this world jesus here was in the world and not of the world, same way as his disciples are in the world, but not of the world. These people with whom Jesus was speaking, this crowd, they were both in the world and of the world. And they lived in the world and they had their minds set on worldly things. They had imbibed the worldly perspective and they continued in that perspective. They had not been raised above that through new life to new life through faith in Christ. They had not been born from above. And as adherents of a worldly perspective, they were in bondage to sin and were in unbelief about who Jesus was, that he was the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to deliver sinners from their sins and lead them into freedom from their bondage. The only way to share in that deliverance is to enter into that freedom by faith. And therefore, Jesus says to them in verse 24, Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, our English translations supply the word he there, unless you believe that I am he. To stick more to the original, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, Augustine commented aptly, saying, what is this? If you believe that I am, I am what? There is nothing added because he added nothing. He left much to be inferred. 
He was expected to say what he was, yet he said it not. There is much implied in his saying only, I am. For so also God had said to Moses, I am who I am. Who can adequately express what am means? Indeed, there is much to be inferred. There is much that is implied. Who of us can adequately express it? And indeed, there is in Christ's words a ring that harkens back to Exodus chapter 3, where the Lord was revealing himself to Moses to send Moses to Egypt. We read that this morning, where Moses said, Behold, uh, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say, The God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God replied to Moses, saying, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Jesus' words here likewise have a ring of Isaiah 43.10 about them. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. And there's a ring here in Jesus' words of Exodus 3 and Isaiah 43, because it is true. This young Jewish man who stood before the crowds there in Jerusalem was really, in fact, the great I Am. He really was the eternal and only begotten Son of the Father, of one infinite and eternal essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Any hint that he was the great I Am was entirely valid, entirely true, because he is the great I Am. But again, he leaves much to be inferred and much that was implied by his hearers. And you can almost see them figuratively scratching their heads after he delivered that remark in verse 24, because the next thing they say, verse 25, they say, who are you? Who is he? He's the one he had been claiming to be from the beginning, from the beginning of his ministry. He is the Son of God. He calls God his Father, making himself equal with God. He's the one who came down from heaven. When he speaks and judges, he does so in righteousness, for his judgment is none other than the judgment of God himself. He and the Father are at one in their judgment. But when Jesus spoke of the Father as the one who had sent him, they they didn't even understand that. They didn't understand that he was speaking to them about the Father, as seen in verse 27. And so Jesus says to them in verses 28 and 29, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And the lifting up of which Jesus spoke here is, of course, the crucifixion, and lifting Him up on the cross. When Jesus talks about being lifted up in the Gospel of John, that's what He's talking about. He says that when they lifted up the Son of Man, then they would know, in his words, that I am. Some of them would come to know Christ as their Lord, recognizing him and repenting and believing on the day of Pentecost and in the early days of the church thereafter. Some of them may have come to realize that he was, in fact, the Christ, but yet still failed to come to true saving faith. They may have recognized that he was the Messiah, but they hardened their hearts and said, we're not interested. And it is 
precisely this. True faith that Jesus is the I am. That is the only way to be released from sins. So he says in verse 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Faith in Christ is the only way by which we can be released from our sins. Because Christ is the one who was sent by the Father to be the propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice, that's what a propitiation is. It's a, a sacrifice that bears wrath and takes away the anger that was due to us for our sins. And that is precisely why Jesus came, was to lay down his life for his sheep, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Peter put it this way when he preached the gospel to Cornelius in Acts 10.43. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. When sins are forgiven, they are they're done away with. They're completely pardoned and, figuratively speaking, forgotten by God. All who trust in Christ are no longer chargeable with the sins that they have committed. They are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. On account of Christ's death on the cross, God will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. As we find in Micah chapter 7, verse 19. But Jesus is absolutely clear that unless they believed, unless they were to believe in him, they would die in their sins. Now, Lord willing, we'll speak in a few moments about what it means to be enslaved to sin as opposed to being free from sin. But for now, suffice it to say that to die in your sins is to die with sins unforgiven and therefore to die under judgment, to die under condemnation. And John has already told us about this back in chapter 3, verse 36, where he said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There it is. You will either believe on Jesus and come to him in repentance and faith, or you will die in your sins and face the judgment of God forever. It will be one of the other for every one of us. For me, for you, everyone in this room, everyone in the world. We will either die in our sins and therefore under condemnation or we will die with sins forgiven through faith in Jesus because we believe that he is, that he is the great I am, that he is the Christ of God who came to die and rise again for sinners. So this is nothing to take lightly. This is nothing to shrug off. This is eternal life or eternal death that we're talking about here. Bottom line is trust in Jesus. Believe that he is the great I am. And what Jesus goes on to point out to those who were listening to him there and also to us is that continuing is critical. That's our second point for this morning. Continuing is critical. We cannot simply suppose that we can begin to believe or merely have a, a rational belief that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that that will be sufficient to save us from our sins. Jesus' interaction with the Jews in verses 31 and 32 is quite instructive in this regard. We find in verse 30 that as Jesus was speaking these things, many came to believe in him. And at a first glance, we might think, wow, that is great. Look, people are getting saved. They are passing from death to life. This is, this is wonderful. This is what we want to see. And yes, by all means, it is great when people believe in Jesus. But what we find here 
and is that this belief that John was referring to here was only fickle and surface level. And John, John brings this out uh, periodically in his gospel. We've, we've seen this before. Think back to the end of chapter 2 where Jesus had done some, some miracles, some signs in Jerusalem, and there were, were some who believed. But John says Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, there were, there were people who were believing in Jesus outwardly and on the surface level. But Jesus knew this was only, this was only skin deep. This was only temporary. They, they were not going to, to stand fast. We saw back after the feeding of the 5,000 in John six fourteen that many of them were saying, this truly is the prophet who was to come into the world. There was, there was an element of faith but again, it was only, only surface level, only skin deep. And that appears to be what's going on here in verse 30 as well. Especially if we trace this conversation that Jesus has with certainly what appears to be the same group of people. Starting here in verse 30, if you trace it all the way out to the end of the chapter, it seems like Jesus is going back and forth with these same people. And so he says to these Jews who had believed in him in verse 31, he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You see, it's not enough for them only to begin to believe. Perhaps they could have thought, based on what Jesus had said earlier, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. Maybe they could have said, well, we believe. We believe that you are. Case closed. Now our sins are forgiven. And I can find mercy with God. But Jesus here says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And this is important because continuing is critical. It's not those who begin to profess faith in Christ, but those who persevere in holding fast their testimony about Christ and those who hold fast to Christ's words who will ultimately be saved. We can probably all think of people whom we have known who have professed faith in Christ and then have ceased maintaining that confession of faith. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. J.C. Ryle helpfully noted, to make a beginning in religious life is comparatively easy. But when the newness of his position is past and gone, and the freshness of his feelings is rubbed off and lost, when the world and the devil begin to pull hard at him, when the weakness of his own heart begins to appear, then it is that he finds out the real difficulties of vital Christianity. It is not the beginning, but continuing of a religious profession that is the test of true grace. In other words, it's the continuing in Christ, continuing to submit to his word, continuing to walk with him, that demonstrates whether one's profession of faith is true or not. And you can see what Ryle was talking about. When someone first learns the gospel and believes in Jesus, there's a certain excitement that can come. There's something fresh and new and wonderful about it. There's a new purpose for living. There's the knowledge that you can be reconciled with God the Father through Jesus. Someone can get all fired up and excited about these things, and we really should. Right? These are wonderful things. Some of you may be familiar with the, uh, the church camp culture, and you may have seen this kind of thing before. 
right? Someone hears about Jesus and appears to believe and leaves camp all fired up wanting to, to go back and follow Jesus. And that, that's great, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And church camp can be a, a really helpful thing. This is not a, not a slam against church camp, right? But just, just imagine that scenario. Someone, you know, hears about Jesus, wants to follow him, all fired up. Then what happens? They have to go back home. They go back to life in the real and regular world. They have to go back to school when summer break is over. The overt temptations to evil start to come. And just the general drag of the world pulls people away from the things of God. And these things pull people away from Christ and from his word. And again, I just use the example of church camp as an example, right? This, this trend can come whenever and wherever someone hears of Christ and seems to embrace the gospel, but then fails to continue in Christ's word. And in failing to continue in Christ's word, they, they fail to abide in Christ and are thus cut off, as Jesus said, like a, like a branch that bears no fruit. Such people were otherwise described by Jesus in the, the parable of the sower as the seed that fell on rocky soil. The seed in that parable that fell on rocky soil sprang up immediately. looked like it was going to be great. Give it some time, there'll be a harvest there. But Jesus said that they had no firm root and were only temporary. When the hot sun came out, the plant was scorched and it died. Jesus said that such is the person who receives the word and immediately, uh, they hear the word and immediately receive it with joy but when persecution or affliction because of the word arises, they, they fall away. It's one thing to begin. It's another thing to continue. Jesus says, if you continue in his word, then you are truly a disciple of his. And that in such a condition, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now we'll speak more in a few moments of the, the freedom. But notice here that you don't get this freedom if you don't continue in the word. This freedom comes only to those who will ultimately persevere. Those who do not persevere, those who do not continue in his word, will ultimately demonstrate that they were never set free from their sins, but rather remained enslaved to their sins. And so for those of you this morning who have begun walking with Christ by believing his word, by believing the gospel, my charge to you this morning is to continue in his word. Now, how do you do that? Well, we need to be taking in the word, we need to be reflecting on the word, and then we need to be putting Christ's words into practice. Let's think about each of these three things. We need to to be taking in the word, we need to reflect on the word, and then we need to also put it into practice. So first we have this need for taking in the word. We have to keep listening to the word of Christ. It's going to be hard to continue in Christ's word if you stop listening to it, if you stop hearing it. And so Proverbs 19:27 says, Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from words of knowledge. And this is what happens. If we stop listening to the truth, we will stray from the truth. And so what this means is we need to continue to expose ourselves to the word of Christ so that we can, so that we can take it in. The chief way of doing this is when the church gathers corporately on the Lord's Day. And certainly the most important of those gatherings is this one right here, morning worship. And as a general rule, if you have to pick one service in the week to be at, this is the one to pick. But then again, why pick if you don't have to? 
We have Sunday school in which we get to explore different topics, some theological, some historical, some that are more hands-on and practical. We have a Sunday evening prayer meeting and a second sermon in the evenings, and this prayer meeting gives us an opportunity to pray both for needs in the life of the church and to pray specifically for missions and evangelism. And we've been trying to emphasize that more here uh, this year, praying for, for missions and evangelism. And we have this opportunity to hear a second sermon, another opportunity to to take in the the word of christ to imbibe it so that we might continue on in it and in addition to the opportunities that we have to imbibe the word of christ here on the lord's day we have midweek bible studies small groups we have the opportunity to take in the word of christ in our own personal bible reading and we have the opportunity also to talk about christ's words to our family and to others the lord had said to his people in deuteronomy 6 These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. There was this idea that in the life of the people of Israel, they were supposed to be continually talking to one another, especially at the, at the family and household level, about the truths of God's word. Parents were to teach their children. They were to talk about them as they were doing normal day-to-day things together, as they're traveling, as they're working, whatever. Talk about these things. And obviously, simply hearing the word is not the same as continuing in the word, but it does help to facilitate our continuing in it. And then... In the hearing of the word and after hearing it, we ought to reflect on what we've heard. We ought to turn it over in our minds and meditate on it, think deeply about it. One man once referred to the practice of biblical meditation as letting the Bible brew in our brains. And I, I like that image. If you think of, especially about the, the way a percolator works, if you're familiar with kind of the old school uh, style of, of percolators, you it heats up the water and it, it bubbles up to the top and then it sinks down over the coffee and then what? It does it again and again and again until the until the cycle is through. And that's a helpful image for, for thinking about Christ's words. I think we are far too quick to think that we have things down, that we know what we're supposed to know. We can move on. And I'm I'm guilty of that too. But there are a couple of problems with that. One is that we are often far more shallow than we think we are. We may think that we have grasped some truth, that we have reflected on it all that we need to, when the reality is that we have not. The Bible contains truths that are shallow enough for an infant to play in, and also truths that are deep enough for an elephant to swim in. There's nothing wrong with being on the shallow end of the pool. We all have to start there, and it's not not always bad to return there from time to time. But it is a problem if we always end up staying there and not moving on to the deeper end of the pool. And so Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. There's nothing wrong with starting with milk. We all have to start with milk. What's the problem if we stay on milk and don't progress to solid food? If you had an infant who could only drink milk, 
and I mean literally only drink milk and never progress to solid food, you would think there was something wrong. So it is with us as believers as well. So that's one problem is that we're more shallow than we think we are. A second is that we just forget things. We learn things and we may have gotten the lesson down fairly well. We may think that we never need to hear the lesson again, but that is not quite so. We often forget what we have learned, and even when we haven't outright forgotten something, there are still things that we need to be reminded of. Somebody needs to point them out to us again and again so that we can say, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. It wasn't that I had learned it and I had completely forgotten it, had no memory of it at all, but I just wasn't thinking of it now, and I needed to be reminded of it. And so Peter says, Second Peter 1, 12 to 15, Therefore, I always will be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which I present, uh, which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Right? There's nothing wrong with a, with a reminder. Peter said, you know these things, but I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. So we need to be reminded. So we need to be taking in Christ's word, we need to be reflecting on it, and then finally we need to be actually seeking to put it into practice. In order to actually continue in Christ's words, we actually have to obey what he says. It cannot simply remain at the intellectual level. We need to be active in applying the things that we have come to believe and know. Faith and works must go hand in hand together. If we're continuing in Christ's words, then we're going to be abiding in him. We're going to be bearing fruit by the working of the Holy Spirit within us. And thus it is that in John 15, Jesus connects these ideas of abiding and bearing fruit and obeying. He says in John 15:10 that if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So we need to hear the word, we reflect on the word, and then we obey it. And so friend, if you have begun your walk as a believer in Christ, then hear the words of Jesus and continue to abide in his word. If you do, you will show yourself to be truly a disciple of Jesus. That's, that's what he says here. Now, if you fail to continue in his word, you will actually show that you were not truly a disciple of Jesus and that you have not been freed from your sins and that you will actually perish in your sins. And if there's anyone here who has never yet begun to follow Jesus this morning, I would encourage you to allow these words of Jesus to push you to count the cost up front. Right? Following Jesus is a serious, lifelong commitment to continue in his word. So count the cost up front. And if you attempt to begin to follow Jesus, but then don't continue to follow Jesus, then even the beginning that you have made will be of no benefit to you. Continuing is critical. But don't let the seriousness of the call to follow Jesus deter you. And don't let the, the need to count the cost up front deter you. Because please know, as any Christian in the room will tell you, that it will be worth it all in the long run. You'll never regret following Jesus. You'll never regret continuing in his word if you truly do it. And this brings us then to our third point, which is that Jesus brings freedom. 
As Jesus is speaking to those who had believed on him and was urging them to continue in his word, he tells them the, the benefit of continuing in his word in verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And this assertion that continuing in his word will lead them to a knowledge of the truth and that the knowledge of the truth will set them free seem to have struck a nerve with these people, if we may put it that way. Jesus' words had stirred up something within them that didn't sit quite right. And so they replied, we're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? These men obviously thought highly of their descent, that they were the descendants of Abraham. And if you read the rest of the chapter, indeed that, that theme of them being the descendants of Abraham looms large in, in their mentality. And they think that they've never been enslaved. And so they're a little bit confused. Why are you talking about setting us free if we're not actually slaves? What are you, what are you talking about? And this leads to Jesus' explanation there in verse 34 and following. He explains to them the kind of slavery that he had had in mind, namely that anyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And that is the truth. Those who sin are enslaved to their sin. Now, they may pretend to be free, and in some respects they may think that they are free. But they're not really free. And Paul speaks to this reality in Romans 6, verses 16 and then 20 and 21, where he says, Do you not know... That when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And again, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. The bottom line is this, that you and I are going to serve something. We're going to serve someone. The only question is what? Are we going to be slaves of Christ? Slaves, therefore, of righteousness? Or else are we going to be slaves of sin and therefore the servants of Satan? Sin brings death. We've already seen that. That if you, if you die far from faith in Christ, you die in your sins, therefore under condemnation. This is why scripture says that the wages of sin is death. To die in sin is to die as the slave of sin, to die under the judgment of God and suffer the just punishment that you deserve in hell. And as has been made clear, sin is enslaving by its very nature. There is something about it that catches us and lays hold of our hearts and of our minds and of ourselves, we are not able to set ourselves free from the grasp, from the enslaving power of our sins. It's beyond our power to do this. Now, we might be able to exchange some sins for others, as it were, but sometimes we can't even do that much. Some sins are more addictive to others, and some sins maybe show their enslaving power more on the surface level than others do. But... Don't let that fool you that those sins that are particularly addictive and visibly enslaving, don't let that fool you into thinking that other sins are not enslaving, right? We can think of the big ones. We can think of you know, pornography or we can think of gambling or heroin or those kind of things. But 
Nevertheless, all sin enslaves. Some just show it on the surface, a little more so than others. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone who is outside of Christ has some addictive behavior that they can't overcome in the sense that they necessarily repeat the same exact action over and over again. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is that sin enslaves those who, uh, those who commit it, that it holds them fast, that they do what their master commands. They cannot free themselves. They're unable to. They continue on in sin, either one sin or another, until they either die in their sins or until they're delivered from their sins by Jesus. And this is why the words of Jesus in verses 35 and 36 are so wonderful. He says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, verse 35 is, is difficult to be sure, but the idea, I think, seems to be that whereas these Jewish people that Jesus was speaking with were claiming to be the sons of Abraham and therefore a right to uh, be sons in the household of God, Jesus is pointing out to them that they are actually slaves. Slaves are not permanent members of a household. On the other hand, sons are permanent members of a household. And so if Jesus sets us free from our sin, then we may move from being in a position of slaves to being in a position of sons. And Jesus, of course, is the true son in the household. He's the one in the household who has the authority to take those who are slaves and to make them sons so that they do not remain excuse me, so that they will be able to remain in the household forever. These Jewish men, you know, being outwardly the people of God, as long as they were slaves of sin, they were only temporarily united to the people of God. There was coming a time when they would die in their sins if they didn't believe, and then they would be put out from the household of God. But Jesus showed the way for them to remain in the household forever. Namely, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. In order for this to happen, however, they and we must continue in Christ's word and therefore know the truth, the truth of Christ and his gospel. The truth of Christ and his gospel sets us free from sin and brings us into what Paul called in Romans 8, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel, that if the Son makes you free... You will be free indeed. Sin enslaves us, but Jesus frees all who trust in him so that we might belong to God and serve him. He transfers us from one domain to the other, as the words of Colossians 1, 13 and 14 indicate. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And being transferred from one domain to another, we've also become sons. Now, in one sense, we're, it's true, we are servants or slaves in as much as we are bound to do whatever the Lord commands. But in another sense, we are no longer slaves but sons in the family of God, sons who have received the, the blessing of adoption and thus have been brought into the family of God. And in all of this, we are set free by Jesus so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We're set free from sin if Christ makes us free. 
How does this freedom play itself out? Well, in a couple of ways. For one, we're set freed from the condemnation of sin. Sin brings condemnation. But we find in Romans 8 that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so we're free from the condemnation of sin. And we're also set free from the dominion of sin. Because prior to trusting in Christ, we're under the domination of sin. It had been our master and we had willingly served it. But that is not the case for those who are in Christ. And so we read in Romans 6.22 that now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And though sin may still cause trouble for the believer in that it tempts us and sometimes we stumble into it, that does not diminish the freedom from sin which is ours in Christ. We're free from its condemnation. We're free from its dominion. It does not reign over us. There is no necessary force in sin compelling us to sin. It's just our own weakness which submits to sin any longer. We don't have to. We've been set free so that we might belong to the Lord and serve him. And we derive the benefit of sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ as we grow in loving what he loves and doing the things that he commands. And this is true freedom. And so praise be to God for his mercy in sending his son to deliver us from a bondage so evil as this. This is good news. This is the gospel. And so then... Let us believe that he is, that he is the great I am, so that we do not die in our sins. Let us continue in his word so that we may prove ourselves to be disciples indeed. And let's rejoice in Christ as our great Savior, who's brought us freedom, brought us out of slavery. Let's pray. Our Father, we give praise and we give thanks to you for sending your Son into the world so that we might have Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for this blessed truth that we've seen here, that he whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. Father, we praise you for that freedom. We ask that we would live in that freedom, which is ours, freedom from sin, that we would not submit to it any longer, that we would rebel against sinfulness, against temptation, against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and let us walk with you in holiness. We praise you for your grace and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.